Greetings, programs, and welcome to the I.O. Tower, a podcast for all things Tron. I'm your host, David Fleming. This is part two of my three-part interview with Tron visual effects supervisor Richard Taylor. Today, Richard picks right up from his work at Robert Abel & Associates, taking us on a deep dive into how that work found its way into Tron and the techniques used to create the special effects of Tron. Glowing circuits, light cycles, disc streaks and tails, sparks when the tank crashes, and so many more. We also get to know about many of the people of Tron, from those working behind the scenes to render each of its 24 frames per second, to those leading its creation, such as director Steven Lisberger, co-effects supervisor Harrison Ellenshaw, and visual futurists Sid Mead, John Mobius Girard, and Peter Lloyd. In part three to air later, Richard talks about Tron's reception within the film industry, the marketing of Tron, and how Tron has changed the world for so many artists and moviegoers. We also talk about the recent traumatic event in Richard's life when he suffered a stroke and how he's recovering and moving forward creatively. Again, welcome to the I.O. Tower. At the Able Studio, we did finally start using computers not to generate the image, but to control the movement of the cameras and of the light box. We created a light box that could pan, roll, and tilt, and the camera had a follow-focus cam and a computer. Initially, they weren't really computers. They were basically tape-punch readers that would send a signal to Slosen motors to move so much per frame. So the camera and the artwork could make a repeated move 20 times or whatever. And then using wow. the backlit technique, we were graphically painting with light, but adding motion to it. So those are the techniques at the Able Studio, and I can explain how they rolled into Tron. Okay. I left the Able Studios and started working at Information International Incorporated, Triple I, it's called, that was started by John Whitney Jr. and Gary Demos. Uh, John Whitney, his father, was a renowned synesthetic filmmaker. And Gary Demos was an incredibly brilliant computer programmer. One of the most important things about Tron that is unique is that it was the film that really broke the firewall between analog filmmaking and digital filmmaking. What most people don't understand in regard to Tron is that up until about 1979-80, all of the imagery that was created by computers was done with the vector graphics and the screen was shot with a camera. But the images that we're making were literally line drawings or high con. They were not fully rendered shaded images. What evolved in the late 70s and early 80s was computer graphics imaging. For the first time, computers that had the right software, and there were very few of them, Information International Incorporated and Magi Synthivision were the two main vendors for doing the raster graphic imagery for Tron. So raster right. graphic imaging means that you have a model in the computer, a mathematical model that is either made from solids, like a Boolean object, or made with polygons. And the computer throws rays of light that right. come from wherever the light source is placed, or multiple light sources are placed. And those beams shoot at the object and bounce off to a theoretical camera. Right. And because of the angle of the object, and the surface qualities of the object, each one of those beams comes back with a different value, darker or lighter or whatever. That technique is called ray tracing. Yes. And, and that's how computers first imitated the effect of light hitting an object and created on the screen a dimensional image. Not a yes. 2D image, but a dimensional image, a ball. 
And one of the most iconic images of that time was the teapot that yes. was initially created at the University of Utah Engineering Department by Alvy Ray Smith, Lauren Carpenter, Ed Catmull, and Jim Blinn. So some of this ray tracing evolved out of doing nuclear research on how electrons bounced off of objects or interacted with each other. So again, those were like beams of energy, but they weren't trying to create, you know, a picture of an object. They were just looking for the reactions. So Magi Synthavision created their own ray tracing algorithms and III, Information International Gary Demos, used work that was done by Jim Blinn and others to write a program that we were using for the computer at Information International to create the objects. So in Tron, all the imagery that would have been in an analog film of models being shot with cameras were replaced with computer simulated raster graphic images. Yeah. So the light cycles, the tanks, the recognizers, Sark's carrier, the MCP, all of those things were raster graphic. They were not physical model. Right. And there are things about computer graphics that are truly, truly unique. Truly computer imaging, raster graphic imaging, is the most powerful visual tool ever invented by mankind. That is blatantly clear when you watch films now where we make totally photoreal human beings cities. We make the fire, the water, the dust, the smoke, the skyscrapers, the destruction of cities. All of that is computer graphics. When we did Tron, it was in its earliest days. So we weren't doing organic images. We weren't doing plants and trees and things like that. But we were doing, you know, geometric objects, which is what the designs of the MCP, the light cycle and the objects in Tron they were designed to take advantage of the fact that those are the kinds of shapes that we could render. It brings to mind when I was in graduate school for computer science in 1995, took a class on computer graphics. And at that point in time, I guess being later than Tron, some uh, 13, 14 years along, that technology had come to the personal computer a little bit more. And we were able to do geometric objects, to do uh, wireframes of uh, spheres and, and pyramids and things like that. And we also one of our homework assignments was actually the teapot you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, we rendered that in wireframe and never got around to ray tracing it. But, um, yeah, it, it was a really uh, connecting the dots for me to, to be a, a kid who fell in love with Tron and to be able to, to pursue those kinds of graphics on a, on a computer right in front of me uh, right. in graduate school. Right. One of the things that is totally amazing and unique about raster graphic computer imaging is that there are no physical limits to the objects or the camera or the lights. When you're shooting real models, camera can only move so far physically. And there are certain angles and things that you can't do in one shot. And you also have to make a holdout mat of the model by making a separate pass. Well, the computer simulated image, like the light cycles or recognizers, whatever, they basically can go from infinity to right in front of the camera. Yes. And they can turn in any direction in any way, and you can create the background behind them perfectly, and all of the perfect perspective and magnification. So one of the things that I really worked at on Tron in helping supervise the animators, Bill Croyer and Jerry Reese, and working with Steven Lisberger, was to really keep emphasizing that we could make these objects move in ways that nobody had ever seen. 
that we could follow the recognizers as they fly over a wall and down, chasing the light cycles through a, <laughs> right. through a yes. tunnel. And then when you come out the tunnel, you could boom all the way up and look at them down low. So there are no physical limitations to the objects or the camera. That means the camera could go anywhere. Wow. Was that a and challenge to Steve Lisberger in directing or to others on the set to imagine that possibility? Well, on the set, when you say the set, the only time we were on a set is when we were shooting the live-action characters. So the sure. rest of all of that, when it was just, say, the life cycle race or the MCP or things like that, those were all just entirely computer graphic images that you previewed the animation, the choreography of the objects in the camera on monitors. But no, Stephen understood it right away. The way that I got involved initially in Tron, again, the right place, right time. Steve Lisberger had Lisberger Studios and they were developing this project Tron. And the idea was that these characters would exist inside a computer, inside a game world. But the characters in that world were going to be animated characters. They were not going to be real people. They were going to shoot the live action in a traditional way and then make a transition down to the electronic world. But Stephen was doing research on computer graphics and what could be done. So he went to all the major players at that time, and like I said, they were limited. There was New York Institute of Technology, there was Magi Synthavision, and there was Information International Incorporated. Stephen came to Information International and introduced us to the film, what he was trying to create, and asked if we could do a rough test of the MCP. And he had some drawings of what he thought it might look like at that time. So we modeled it and we did a test of that. And he came back and was amazed at the test. In our conversations, he realized that I was the same Richard Taylor who had been at Bob Abel and Associates and had created all that candy apple neon 7-Up commercials, <laughs> the ABC graphics and all of that. We started discussing techniques to create the imagery in the electronic world, other than the models, how to stylize the look of the animated characters. And he had done a test on his own at Disney to try and come up with a way to use live-action characters and to stylize them in a way so that the characters from the real world, you know, like Flynn, when they were in the electronic world, had this look, but they were still real human beings. They were not animated. And so we started having these discussions, and he and I bonded up really quickly because Steve is a very bright guy, and he was looking for innovation, and he and I were percolating like crazy on this. Then he took me to Disney and introduced me to Harrison Ellenshaw, who was at that time going to be the effects director. I don't know if you know Harrison's background, but he had worked on the Star Wars movies. His father was one of the most renowned matte painters in the world. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, worked on all those special effects in those Disney movies. And Harrison had worked on the special effects doing different tasks. Harrison knew the inner workings of Disney. He was a natural for Steve to hook up with to interface with Disney to try and create how we were going to do these effects. Well, I had never met Harrison, but we met, and then he learned how we could do this raster graphic stuff at I, and I showed him all the work that we had done at Abel that I had directed there and how it was done. And between the three of us, we cooked up the technique to create the backlit look of the animated characters in the electronic world, like the costume that you made. Okay. That, that became light. Yes. 
So we communicated really well, and Steve wanted me to work on the film and for Information International to do computer graphics for the film. But I knew, as I explained to him, that the amount of computer imaging that needed to be done for the film did not be done exclusively with Triple I that it would take more than one company to do the imagery, the amount of minutes in the film that required raster graphics. So Stephen had already done this research, and Magi Synthivision had a production process and were organized in a way that they could be incorporated into the production. So I went back and met with Bill Middleman and the software and hardware people and the animators there to see if we could coordinate, and I felt that we could. So Steve made me the visual effects supervisor along with Harrison Allen Shaw. So he and I were the co-effects directors. But my main work was to supervise the computer simulation and to design the backlit look. We'll call it the candy apple look for the live action characters in the electronic okay. world. Now. The process to do what we did in Tron for the stylization of the characters in the electronic world was, again, a one-off that nobody will ever do again. Uh, <laughs> so to explain it as kind of directly as I can, if you remember, I was talking about how at Able, the imagery of Candy Apple Neon is done with high-con film that is backlit with a light box and then colors added by filtering the camera and putting other filters over the artwork or in front of the lens. We came up with the idea that if we shot the live action with as large a film format as we could, 70mm, 65mm film, on stage and made it black and white so that the actors wore white costumes and with black designs knowing that those black designs on the costumes were eventually going to become made of light. Okay. So, we designed the costumes with the graphics on them, which I was one of the main people designing the graphics. Of course, we had Sidney, Jean-Claude Mobius, uh, Jean-Paul Girard Mobius, yes. uh, Peter Lloyd, and some other people involved, Sidney being one of the most prominent. And between us, we designed all of the graphics in the film. On the objects, on the props, the inside of the tanks. Um, that was beautiful. Yes. The look of the MCP. So all the graphic work, which basically was all drawn by hand. That's amazing. And every helmet. We were two weeks away from shooting, and we had all of these helmets that had been stylized with the addition, you know, using those Cooper hockey yeah. helmets and yeah. other hockey gear that had all been painted white, but there was no designs on them. So Just I doing would... one of those helmets for cosplay takes so much time. I can't imagine the labor <laughs> involved uh, doing multiple helmets. Right. So at that time, you know, the costumes that they would be wearing were going to be spandex. And the techniques for printing on spandex, which today is incredible when you look at, you know, uh, pro ski racers or any, I yeah. mean, the, the graphics on spandex is just, there's no limit. But at yeah. that time, again, everything was done by hand, very much like you did it. So we were running out of time, and I basically decided that I just had to grab the bull by the horns and get some of these things designed. So I would take home a helmet every night, whether it was one of the guard's helmets or Tron's helmet or Yori's helmet <laughs> or any of them, and I would... By using 
quarter-inch black masking tape and chart pack tape, which is a type of black tape that's used to do graphics for lithography, um, oh. and some transfer uh, type. When people do graphic art, especially back before the computer was the main tool, you had these images that were printed on a wax-based paper that you could rub and it would leave that image on a white piece of paper. And then you could okay. use this chart pack tape to make lines and you would just cut the line off where you wanted it to end with an X-Acto knife. So I used the combination of chart pack tape transfer type images and quarter inch black masking tape and literally would just do one of those helmets a night oh my goodness i did a lot of all-nighters <laughs> i would bring it back to the wardrobe department at disney and they would say well, how did you do this and i would show them and they'd wait oh my god <laughs> we don't know how to do this and i said well that's what you're going to learn to do because there's no other way to get this imagery on these helmets and right. so they had a lot of people sitting there probably using my name in vain <laughs> uh imitating you know what i had done so i put the imagery on the helmets and the props like sark's helmet Dumont's big helmet and the game that used the highlight. The ring game. The ring game. You know, all the designs on that prop. Any prop that needed a design on it, I would just do it, whether it was the, the shoulder pads or whatever. Arm gauntlets, that sort of thing, too. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then the wardrobe department did what they could to figure out ways to expedite that. But it was very labor intensive, it was all done by hand. There was no computer printing anything. It was all literally done by hand. The characters, the actors, Jeff, Cindy, and Bruce, David Warner, would be on stage, and we made the stage a total blackout, meaning we hung black dubatine everywhere, and then we found a material that was an Exeter paper that basically was flocked in a way. So it was these rolls of paper that were like flat black on one side that did not reflect light. And then we made props, for example, the control panel for the solar sailor or the object that Sark is in when the MCP is questioning him at the beginning. Anything yes. that they walked on, touched or held or that we built them as physical objects and covered them entirely with this black paper so that they were self-matting. That's what you call that. And then we replaced that object with imagery that we created on the camera. So we shot them in 70 millimeter and we lit the actors as flatly as we could. So they didn't have a lot of shadows so that we could continue the process. And the process we came up with was, first of all, we had film made for us, one of a kind by Kodak. We had cells made that were roughly 10 inches by 20 inches that were made of film, unexposed film, and those frames of film had our pin registration holes cut in the film already. As I mentioned, when you put things on an animation camera under it, you have registration pins that were used to make sure each cell lines up in the same position as the right. previous. So this film was made for us by Kodak they made continuous tone film, meaning the opposite of high con. Continuous tone okay. means that all the gray values are there, all the shading, and then they made us cells that were high con. Okay. Then we built two large film processors. We didn't build them, we um, bought them. 
And what we would do is put the 65 millimeter film of Jeff Bridges running around the sound stage in the enlarger, project it down onto a platen that had this continuous tone film on it with these registration pins and expose the continuous tone film. And we were projecting a negative, and so the film would make a positive. That large film, the cells, was then removed from the platen and put into this film processor. And at the other end would come a continuous tone transparency with registration pins in it. So you had a large frame of continuous tone that was positive, meaning it's the way it looked to you in real life. You know, what was white was white and what was gray was gray and so on. Um, there was a continuous tone positive for every frame of live action. My goodness. The standard rate of projection, especially in that time, was 24 frames a second. So there are 24 individual images per second to create a moving imagery of Jeff Bridges walking across the stage. So, so this there- resulted in 24 10-inch by 20-inch Uh, registration pinned cells every second. Correct. Then to be able to stylize the imagery to make that which was the black designs on the costumes glowing made of light to make their faces have flesh color, have their teeth white and the whites of their eyes white and the basic costume to have a color value. We had to make high cons of the same image. So, in a separate room, we would put the high-con film down under a platen, lay the continuous tone over the top of it, and a top light would expose it and make a contact print or a contact exposure of the continuous tone image to the high-con film. Then that high-con film would go through the film processor and come out the other end, with it being totally opaque black and everything that was black on the costume or the background was clear or white. Right. So now we have a negative in high con of the costume so that those black lines are now clear, but they're not isolated. So the next step was we would take the high con negative and put it under the same platen with the top exposure, put another piece of high con underneath it, and the high con negative on top flash that and take the lower piece of film, put it through the processor, and out the other end would come a high con positive. Okay. So we have three elements here. We have the continuous tone frame, the high con negative, and the high con positive. Then what had to be done was we had to isolate the different elements, the circuits, the body, the face of each character, the whites of their eyes, the whites of their teeth, Um, their hands and the way that that was done is that all of these high con positives and negatives were then hand painted with totally opaque black paint to isolate the circuits or whatever so to expose the circuits we would lay down the high con negative and then over that would lay this cell that was painted to cover up anything other than the circuits And then over that, we would lay the continuous tone positive, and that is backlit to the film. So there you go. There you have the circuits being isolated. Then the color was put on by putting Rattan, W-R-A-T-T-E-N, color gels, which are the most perfect color gels that are used in optical printers over the lens of the camera for blue or red or gold or green or whatever color we wanted it. 
I had built in the end 18 animation cameras most of them at the Disney studio but there were other subcontracted animation companies all of them had to have the exact same light box and the light boxes were not fluorescent light boxes they were um, incandescent light all with exactly the same bulbs all with the exact same opal glass top to diffuse the light all with the same registration pins so they would lay on the platen of these oxberries and the camera would shoot down and expose these combination of cells to isolate the different areas of the character frame per frame on 18 different cameras the language of candy apple neon that i created at the able studios one of the things you have to do to control all this is you have to write an exposure sheet Okay. That defines for the cameraman exactly what's happening on every frame. So there are vertical rows that represent the process and then horizontal rows that represent the individual frames. And I designed a way that you would write what was laid under the camera in what layers in what order. Oh. And part of the processes of the work that was laid under the camera was I used different thickness of opal plexiglass, 16th inch, 8th inch, quarter inch, and so forth, to lay over the Hikon to make it diffused, to make it softer. Oh. That was part of the way I did the stuff at Able. So sometimes I'd lay a negative of a circuit, then the opal glass, and then a positive of the circuit to make things have these gradated glows. Yes. So there were different tricks used on the actual artwork itself, and then I invented a lot of different filters. I didn't invent them all. Some of them were standard optical filters used on cameras when you're shooting or used in optical printers. One of the ones I used a lot in Tron was steel silkscreen mesh. Silkscreen is a process for printing posters and t-shirts and so forth. And right. the traditional silkscreen is nylon, but there is also in an industrial silkscreen steel mesh. Mm. If you go to a sheer curtain somewhere in your house and hold up a piece of white nylon or a sheer curtain, and there's a point light source on the other side of it, you will see that it makes these four prismatic shapes around that light. Okay. It makes a distortion. When you steel mesh silkscreen, because it's steel polished, it's metal, you really get the diffraction grain. You get the, this <laughs> kind of rainbow break of the color. Yes. So if you have just a simple dot, what you have are these four streaks on each side of it that have this gradation of color. Now, one of the things that people need to understand about this backlit process is that you can animate the light, how much it glows, by opening the shutter of the camera, not the shutter, I'm sorry, the lens of the camera, the f-stop, or that you let the frame expose a little longer so that you can make the light pulse, so that frame per frame you can open the f-stop and make something pulse or glow. It can be overexposed or underexposed, depending on what you're trying to do. So those exposures are all written in the exposure sheet. If the camera is going to make some move, there's a column that tells them how many millimeters to turn the dial to move the X and Y of the artwork or the camera on its zoom. And again, you're laying 24 of these images down for one second of animation, but you're laying 24 images down of just the circuits. So to have... You have to repeat character. that for uh, flesh tones, for eyeballs, for teeth, for... That's right. Uh, so everything you see of a character standing there, 
there's an exposure for the circuits. And you could isolate the different circuits. So if you wanted helmet to glow more at one time or his body to pulse, you know, light, that would be isolated. So you could isolate the different circuits. You can isolate anything with these overlays. I remember one scene in particular where uh, Kevin Flynn is transported into the computer and he's uh, examining his, his self. He's looking at his arms, his hands, and we see the uh, blue light animated around the circuit paths on the uh, back of his hands and arms. Yes, well, that's exactly, that's light animation that's changing that f-stop per frame, changing the exposure of that circuit with the blue filter on it per frame. So the steel silkscreen mesh was one of the filters I used and then diffusion filters which are used in regular cinematography and fog filters and then star filters which uh, there are different types of star filters I won't get into trying to define them all but they all have their own qualities. I remember one scene uh, I think it's sort of the same moment in the film the guards are uh, telling Flynn to move along and they're poking him with the staffs they have and there are these flares of light coming off. Is that by any chance the steel silkscreen being used for that effect? That is. Oh. That's exactly what that is. At different times when there are sparks or light explosions like that, when the tank is chasing the light cycles and they go off the grid right? and they come to that cliff and one tank bumps into the other and it falls off but you cut inside and you see the sparks and things flying around. That mesh is used in there for all those sparks. It takes something that's quite simple and makes it very complex. Yes. There are other tricks with that which I'll just mention briefly. So I made spinners as well, which is a device that sits in front of the lens of the animation camera that could turn the filter that's in front of the lens. If you put steel mesh on there and you spin it, if you ever hold that piece of nylon up and look at a highlight, you rotate the mesh, you'll see that those four images around the object continually stay there and keep moving around. Mm. If you have a steel mesh on there and you had a dot, and you open the camera and you spin that mesh, it's streaking those things around to create this glow around the object that actually has a spectral quality to it. The longer you expose it, if you expose it for a minute, you get multiple, multiple rainbows that go off in every direction. So that's a trick that I used at Able and Associates a lot. Every time you see those sparks and so forth in Tron, that was an effect that we used on it. As I was saying, for Flynn to stand there, there was an exposure for the circuits. There was an exposure for the body suit itself, that which was the white part of the suit when they're standing on the stage to make it blue or reddish or whatever we wanted so that that had color, wasn't just white. One of the decisions we had to make in Tron was all cost-driven. Were we going to have shadows of the characters in the electronic world or interactive light? One or the other. We couldn't do both. We couldn't afford both. Okay. So the decision was made to do interactive light. So when Tron holds up a disc in front of himself, it lights him from the front. When a yes. disc comes flying by, you see the light go across the person that passes by. So there's interactive light throughout the movie. But basically, there's an exposure for the circuits, an exposure for the suit, and we did an airbrush gradation on the costumes that was applied during the backlit to make the suits and everything get progressively darker as they move toward the floor. Mm. 
Most people don't realize that, but if you look at it, you'll notice that they all gradate from the color down to almost black at the lower part. The circuits aren't gradated, but the body costume. That way they blend into the floor and you don't say, well, where's their shadows? Because when you're trying to make something look like it's standing there, there's nothing that puts something in a real environment like a shadow. Correct. It puts you there. But we could not afford to do shadows because we couldn't shoot them by the way we were shooting them. We would have had to animate the shadows. So then there's an exposure for their flesh color, their face, their hands, and then there's an exposure for the whites of their teeth and the whites of their eyes. If you don't put that white in the eyes or the teeth, they look dead. Yes. That's essential to have that white in the eyes and the teeth. So those are the basic exposure. There's five exposures just to have a character standing there <laughs> per character. And each one of those exposures is a separate pass with 24 frames exposed. All of that done by hand with animation cameramen doing that. Wow. Now the backgrounds that they are standing in, leaning against, walking on, that have those moire animated light patterns or... Mm -hmm. Those were all hand-drawn by the background department. We knew what the environment was they were going to be in, whether it was the solar sailor or the bridge of the uh, Sarks carrier or whatever. We knew what the shapes were and the objects that were in there, so we would take a frame of the film overexposed so we could see the actual shapes of the real objects that we built, and then we would just overdraw that with line drawings and add textures, do more ray patterns and other things. For example, the map on the wall of Sark's carrier. Yes. I drew that by hand Wow. with a rapidograph. I did a lot of the drawings for Tron, all the line drawing imagery on the game, on the console, the game itself, or all the other places where there are those kind of line drawing things. Those I drew myself with rapidograph and mechanical drawing tools. A rapidograph is an inking pen that makes different sized lines, depending on what kind of tip you have on it, that people use to draw blueprints and things back in the day. Okay. So all of that stuff was hand drawn. Now, the next step in all this is the effects animation. When a disc is thrown, the streak that is left behind it, when right. the ring game is played and the rings disappear or the high-lie ball ricochets off of something and hits something and there's sparks that fly or when Clue is derezzed, all of that animation, and including one that everybody remembers, is the forming of the light cycles. That yeah. was all done by the animation department. Not one of those animators that worked on the film were from Disney. We had to find our own animators and teach them the process. Chris Cassidy, John Van Vliet, and a host of others hand-drew all of that animation by drawing on cells. You have the cell of, say, Tron standing there. And then you overlay that with a piece of blonde paper so you can see through it from the backlight. And they initially do it with pencil to draw where the object's going to fly, what it's going to do. And then as a whole separate set of drawings, they animate the interactive light on the character. Then that all is inked. And they do that with rapidographs and painting and so forth. Mm. And then those would be shot with a copy camera to make high cons or continuous tone cells again. So when a disc is thrown, it goes flying and there's this tail behind it. 
The tail is actually hand-drawn. There's a airbrush gradation on it that makes it get darker toward the end and a color filter over it in the camera. And frame per frame, all that special effects animation is done frame per frame. Exposures are animated per frame. Same kind of thing. It's this whole backlit process that was a one-off for Tron that'll never be done again, ever. It was really on display in the uh, scene where Tron is uh, battling four other programs as Flynn and other conscripts look down from above and we see all the streaks with all the discs going around. It's really marvelous. Right. And the fight between Sark and Tron around the MCP, mm -hmm. um, that whole sequence is uh, all that affects animation. But it's, it's all over the place. Like yes. the image, like when you mentioned the scene when Flynn arrives and the guards touch him with their staffs and those, those sparks fly. Yeah. Those sparks were hand animated, black on a white background, then turned into icons. Each one of those little sparks becomes a clear window on a black background, put on the animation camera with backlight behind it, and then I put the steel silkscreen mesh on the camera and you expose it and you change the exposure per frame. So that's, again, that was hand done. That's all, amazing. All the effects animation. When the light cycle forms around Tron and Flynn, they were on a rig that was black on black that they sat on and then the handlebars came down. They were holding onto them. They were shot. And then the light cycle around them, all those lines that form around them, all that was hand drawn, those polygonal drawings of the light cycle, and was drawn in a way that we could have it come on sequentially. So it would come on part for part to create the light cycle. The only effects animation that is not hand animated are the walls left behind the light cycles. Those are actually raster graphic. There is another hand animation done in that whole light cycle sequence when we were shooting the characters looking through their windows at each other and so forth. I yes. animated light streaks that would go over the glass. Yes, it made it look like they were moving very fast. That's right. Otherwise, if you didn't do that, they weren't moving. And frankly, if you were in a light cycle like that, on a grid like that, those lines wouldn't have reflected on the window because those windows are kind of generally looking upward. Um, yeah. You know, you don't reflect the ground, but I just ha I had to put something there to give it life and to get the move. It does. It really gives it such a sense of motion. And yes. I have to say, the uh, when you're describing the scene of, of the light cycles forming around Flynn and Tron and, and Ram, mm -hmm. um, I didn't know that the, as they were forming in, in the lines, the polygonal artwork coming into play, I didn't know that was hand-drawn. I, I guess I thought it was part of the computer animation of the bikes, but... It's so seamless the way you, you merge the, the analog, the hand-drawn, with the uh, raster imaging and rendering of, of the bikes. It's amazing. Yes. Well, some of the main difficulties in making the movie were to blend the different processes together to make it all feel like the same world. For example, Magi Synthavision had its particular way of modeling objects to then be shaded raster graphic. Information International had an entirely different process. Magi Synthovision used what we now refer to as Boolean modeling. That is, that they took primary shapes, a cone, a cube, a sphere, and would add and subtract them to each other to create a shape. Mm -hmm. The objects that they created for the movie 
I worked with Sid Mead, well, Steve and I, and with Sid Mead, so that when he designed the light cycles, the recognizers, that they could be done with that modeling technique. Information International had a much more complex way of creating objects. We basically made polygonal objects. My favorite object in the film actually is a solar sailor. Yes. Which was designed by Mobius. Not by Sid Mead, but Mobius. These two different animation companies made their models in different ways. I had to make sure that when you watched the film, you didn't go, ooh, that model, that looks entirely different than those there. So right. the complex models, the Solar Sailor, Sark's Carrier, the MCP, those were all made by III. So I had to do lots of tests of each object, its color, its lighting and everything, going back and forth between the companies and cheat each company's look to make it look like the others. Mm -hmm. Because the Boolean objects by Magi always had a little beveled edge on where the objects met each other intentionally, so you could see it. Yes. Well, the polygonal objects do not have that. So on Sark's carrier, I had to imitate that edge by putting a red line on that edge or literally modeling a bevel on that edge. Mm. So I had to kind of work back and forth to make sure that the objects were similar enough that you felt they were all in the same world. Very interesting. Likewise, the lighting of objects, those light rays that are hitting an object, you can have multiple lights in a scene, and each light can have its characteristic. In the real world, we have spherical lights, spotlights, fluorescent lights, and we have all different lights, and they distribute light in a different way. Well, with computer simulation, you can put a light anywhere you want. You can see the effect of the light, but you don't have to see the light. You can put hundreds of lights in the scene. You can never do anything like that in the real world with real models or on a set. So the way we lit the computer objects, we came up with the vocabulary between both III and Magi. The other incredibly difficult thing was that the people who were working at Triple and Magi were not animators. They were technicians. They knew how to use the programs, place objects where they needed to be, place the lights where they needed to be, place the camera where it needed to be. But how were we to define where all those things were frame per frame? So Bill Croyer and Jerry Reese and I I've got to credit Bill Croyer with really solving this problem. We had to come up with a vocabulary that every technical person at either one of these companies used frame per frame to define exactly the position of the camera, the object, pitch, roll, and yaw of every object. In a three-dimensional graphic world in computer simulation, we work with a Cartesian coordinate system. The middle of the world is zero, and you have X, Y, and Z axes. Yeah. X and Y are up and down and left and right, and Z comes at you and goes away from you. Yes. So we had to define in three space where every object was, what its rotation was. So every frame for the light cycle race, we had to know exactly how many feet that light cycle moved, you know, exactly where the camera was and all of that. And we came up with a Cartesian coordinate system that uh, I won't go into any more than to say that Bill Croyer and Jerry Reese hand wrote out every number, thousands of numbers, 
on animation sheets for the computer animators to literally type in the numbers for every axis of every object for every frame. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And that's what powers, for example, the scene where the recognizers are coming down on the light cycles as they're heading for the escape in the wall. Mm-hmm. That's right. So everything in that scene, we have to define exactly where everything is in three-dimensional space. I can visualize the recognizers rotating and pivoting off to the left and then coming down and swooping in. Yeah, diving. Yeah. So you have to have pitch, roll, and yaw on every object. That's rotation around the center, tipping up and down, and right. rolling left to right. So all those measurements had to be communicated to these technicians frame per frame for every axis. And that meant thousands of numbers. We literally did storyboard out with traditional line drawing animation, the light cycle race and other things like that, and then interpreted those animations into three space to communicate it all to the computer animators. The other part of the process of creating Tron was how the exposure sheets and all that were written for these 18 animation cameras. So if you look at the credits, there are scene coordinators, they are called. Initially there were eight, but eventually there were more. I think altogether there were 12. Most of them were people who I knew that had worked at the Able Studios who knew how to do Candy Apple Neon. So Dina Burkett, Michael Gibson, and John Grower, and those kind of people, we hired as scene coordinators. Each one of them had an office with a large light box with registration pins on it where they could lay the artwork down and look at it and create the order in which the artwork had to go down per frame. They had these large animation sheets that they had to write the numbers on there, what color filter was on the camera, what exposure per frame the f-stop was, the layers of artwork where they were. The way that everybody had exactly the same exposures and everything is I did a wedge book, which was I made a test pattern that had dots and lines and different patterns that I made into a high-con frame that we put on one of those animation cameras. All of the animation cameras had exactly the same light box, exactly the same brightness and color. Right. So these scene coordinators divided up all the scenes in the movie that had effects. They also were responsible for writing the exposure sheets for the colors and the filters and things for the effects animation. You know, the streaks. When there was a streak happening behind a, a disc, there's the actual disc which was flying that was rotoscoped. Rotoscope means you're drawing frame per frame to marry up to the object. So the animator would draw frame per frame where the object was and then the shape of the street would turn into icons and then we made an airbrush gradation on those tails of those streaks so that they got darker as they got toward the tail of the street. Right. There's just all kinds of things going on that people have no idea how well, complex it's, it is. so amazing. I had... Like, you know, I consider myself an uber Tron fan and watched the film many times for years and read about it. Listening to you describe the, the sheer amount of effects and, and what goes into making them is something I really have to say I was not aware of. It's truly amazing. And, and I, I guess I can see what you mean when you say it will never be done this way again. <laughs> no. It's just too labor-intensive and would be too expensive. But just to train the people in those techniques, again, this is all the analog era. And even the computer simulation, we had to invent the language for the choreography. There yeah. was no Maya, there was no Max, there was no Lightwave. 
There was no Photoshop. There was no Illustrator. I had to hand draw every line with a rapidograph, you know, night after night at my drafting table or with real objects, putting patterns on them because there was no Photoshop or Illustrator or all these incredible tools that we have now. Right. I think it's interesting to consider that the work that you did on Tron, that you and your team and crew members did on Tron, they say that science fiction comes before science fact, or it leads the way towards science fact. In Mm -hmm. that spirit, when I look at Tron and I see the effects and the circuits and and all of that, it makes one want to invent the tool to do that. And I think probably that's a lot to do with why there are computer uh, programs today, Photoshop and other things that... You you just led the way toward what we wanted to see. That's right. What we wanted to see in a way to do it more perfectly and less labor intensive with more control. If I was drawing with a pitograph and I made a mistake, you know, I had to redraw it all by hand. The big difference between then and now is we didn't have control Z. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I have been totally amazed being one of the people involved in computer simulation in its very, very earliest time. How quickly the software and hardware has all evolved. I thought it would take twice as long as it did to get to Jurassic Park from Tron. Jurassic Park, which had living organic creatures and foliage and all these things. We couldn't do any of that when we did Tron. Right. So to write the software and to create the hardware and to create things like Wavefront did to create Maya and Max and right. Lightwave and all the other 3D programs that exist. And all of the software has been written for ray tracing and, you know, all the ways of imitating the way light acts in the real world now. That's why I said there has never been a more powerful visual tool ever created by man than raster graphics and computer simulation. There is nothing that you can imagine that we can't do. Just go to the theater and you'll see. Intro music by me. Rest of music by Wendy Carlos from the Tron soundtrack. Join us next time as we continue our conversation with Richard Taylor. And I can tell you a couple of stories about the marketing of Tron and some of the ways the world has absorbed the film. Until then, I'm your host, David Fleming. Join me on patreon.com slash ddprogram. End of line.